Hello, greetings. We're very glad that you're interested in spiritual things, and we're very glad that you've joined us. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And today we're going to continue our exploration into some of the Jewish people of the Second Temple period. We talk about the Second Temple period. It's a period between about 530 before Jesus. It's about the year 70 of our own era. We also call it the post-exilic era. It's often subdivided into the different ruling empires. So the Persian period begins this era from about 530 to 334 before Jesus. Then uh, Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. His generals divided his empire. So we have Ptolemy in Egypt rules over Israel from 334 to 200. And then the Seleucids, who ruled over Asia, conquered Israel and ruled over it for about 200 to 167 before Jesus. At that time, Antiochus IV Epiphanes uh, condemned Judaism, made it against the law to observe the law of Moses and to circumcise, and offered a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. And the family of the Maccabees rose up in rebellion, and their rebellion was successful. And so we speak of that family as the Hasmoneans, and they rule from 167 to 63 before Jesus. And then the Romans begin ruling. And they will continue to rule for hundreds of years, but we cut off this period at 70 of our own era, because that is when they destroy the temple in Jerusalem. It's a very difficult time in Jewish history. Especially at the beginning of the period, the people are recovering from the fallout of the economic, political, social, and religious apocalypse that was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple near 586. There was no Davidic king on the throne, and the land of Israel did not belong to the Israelites. Some or all of the Jews lived in foreign lands, and wherever they were living, they were under the domination of a foreign pagan king or emperor. So how is it that Yahweh is still Lord in all of these things? How could the Jews live faithfully in these conditions? Well, in the pages of Scripture, we see that at the beginning of this period, Yahweh continued to inspire prophets and instructors to provide Israel with the kind of guidance they would need about what would come to pass and how they could serve Him until the Messiah would come. And there's a lot that we can gain from considering these men and their character, and women, and to see how Yahweh delivered His people through them, and Yahweh showed them the way forward. And today, let's consider Ezra, who was a scribe and a priest of God. We learn about Ezra's life from the book that bears his name in parts of Nehemiah. Now, not all of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 and continuing, and also in Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 12. It's very likely that Ezra is the chronicler. You see a lot of parallels between the beginning of the book of Ezra and the end of Chronicles. You see a a style uh, similarities between the two. And so, very likely that Ezra is the chronicler, and therefore... Uh, he is responsible for First and Second Chronicles in the form we have them today. Uh, likely, likewise, in the Apocrypha, Ezra takes on a very strong prominence. Uh, the books of Esdras are all in some way related to Ezra. Um, in Second Esdras, there's a lot of apocalyptic visions that supposedly were given to Ezra. Now, these are we have them sort of preserved in the Greek Septuagint. There might have been Hebrew originals. They are not considered scripture. But they do show that in the Second Temple period, there was a lot of uh, speculation that kind of surrounded Ezra in terms of the things that God had revealed to him. We meet Ezra in Ezra chapter 7. He, he is the son of Sariah and ultimately a descendant of Aaronith through Zadok. In the days of Artaxerxes, he goes up from Babylonia to Judah around the year 458. We're told 
that he is a scribe, that he is skilled in the law of Moses. And King Artaxerxes gave him a commission to return to Judah to teach the law of Moses, to establish the appropriate magistrates and judges, to enforce obedience to the law of Moses, and to provide sacrifice to God in chapter 7. Uh, we are told in chapter 7 and 8 that he and some Levites and other Jews returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, that they entrusted themselves and their security to God, and that God protected them. They did not have a, a escort, a military escort from the king, even though they were carrying much gold and supplies. They trusted that God would preserve them from bandits, and he did. And they were able to hand over to the uh, temple authorities in Jerusalem all the things that they had brought with them, that they did not lose anything. The main story that we get about Ezra in the book bearing his name is in chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra. That when he arrives in Judah, the officials spoke to him and said that the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. And when he hears this, he mourns, he prays, he fasts, and he goes in front of the temple and he uh, expresses the guilt of the people in a prayer in chapter 9. And it's a prayer that uh, really lays quite the guilt trip on the people for their uh, faithlessness, for their turning away from the ways of God. And... Um, that they could not stand before God because of these things. So chapter 10, the people are hearing him making confession from the temple, and they realize their sin. They weep bitterly, they confess it, they make a covenant to uh, handle with the matter according to the law. At that moment, verse 5, Ezra made sure uh, that uh, they would take an oath to do what was said, and they took that oath. Uh, and he makes sure that the follow-up is accomplished. Uh, the t- people of Israel gather, Ezra declares their sin, and they and he also demands their confession, and they all decide to separate from their foreign wives, and this is sealed and attested in Ezra chapter 10. Now, in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, we're told the story of, at some point during this time, when Nehemiah is governor, but and Ezra is there, and these, these events overlap, all the people gather at the square before the water gate, and Ezra brings the book of the law of Moses to read to the people. In verses 5 through 8, he opens a scroll, he blesses Yahweh. The people respond with Amen. He, he and the Levites then read the book and gave the understanding. That was, that's explicitly pointed out in Nehemiah 8 and verse 8. Afterward, the people are given the feeling that they should mourn of their sins and the things that they done wrong, but uh, Nehemiah and Ezra both declare that it's holy to Yahweh, and that they should not mourn or weep, Instead, they should, and they all go away rejoicing, that yeah, sure, there's been problems, yeah, sure, there's been sins, but uh, the law has been read in their hearing, and therefore they should rejoice in it. It's interesting, though, when we read in verse 13, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that Yahweh had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it 
and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. And it continues on. It's interesting that they, they see this and they realize that it's that time and they're not doing it. And so they immediately summon everybody to do this. And during this time, we're told in verses 13-18, that uh, Ezra reads daily from the book of the law of God. Now chapter 9, uh, we are told that there is this prayer of confession of sin. In Nehemiah 9, 6-37. Um, in the Hebrew, it's just a prayer given uh, we're told certain Levites in verse uh, 4 and 5 uh, cry out to God and bless uh, uh, Yahweh their God. But in the Septuagint there is a, uh, an addition in verse 6 that says, And Ezra said before the prayer, uh, suggesting that Ezra is the one who actually gave this prayer of confession. Um, that is not preserved in the Hebrew or in Septuagint, but it could be uh, a valid reading. That was what was said in the original, it fell out, or it's possible it's just a later reading because the expectation would have been that Ezra would have said the prayer because he had spoken earlier in the book. We can't quite be sure. Um, in Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 26, uh, we see mentioned again that uh, when Nehemiah is governor, that uh, Ezra is the priest and scribe. So he's He's got this position of prominence for certain in the land and among the people. And that's what we learn of Ezra from the scriptures. So what do we take away from this? Well, Ezra comes to Judah at a very challenging and critical time. It seems pretty clear that the prophetic word was scarce in the 5th century BC and it would soon be gone until the days of the Christ. And when we think about the final prophets... Uh, of the time, the Old Testament, you have Zechariah and Haggai. They're both prophesying while the temple is being restored. We learn about them earlier in the book of Ezra, when Ezra's still writing history. Uh, that was going on many, many years before uh, Ezra is present. Uh, Ezra comes around 458, and those guys were living around the time of 522. So there's a pretty decent distance in time between uh, those those people. Um, Malachi may be prophesying sometime around this time. We're not that that book is not entirely sure in terms of its dating, but but it's very clear that there is a dearth of understanding of the law uh, in Judah itself. The people were becoming less distinctive because they were intermarrying and they were assimilating into the pagan nations around them, and that's why it was very important to have instruction and exhortation to encourage the people to be faithful. Otherwise, there may not be much of an Israel left. And let's be honest. When we look at Ezra 9 and 10, it's a really difficult passage, isn't it? The idea that here we see Ezra coming in, telling them to forsake their wives and children. You know, what happened to those wives and children? On the other hand, uh, there's a very important reason that Ezra is concerned about this thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in the first three verses, uh, Yahweh warned Moses, and Moses then warned the people, that they need to be careful, uh, that they needed to destroy the peoples and the nations that they were coming into, because they are bigger than they are and mightier, lest um, you will not marry with them, giving your daughters their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn 
away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And of course that was exactly what had happened during the pre-exilic, during the days of the Davidic monarchy. And the danger was there again. Because if the Israelites intermarried with the nations around them, they would lose their distinctiveness. They would cease the, the genealogies. We see all these genealogies. And those genealogies would be almost meaningless because it would be the distinctiveness of the people would be lost. You wouldn't be able to continue those tribal alliance, those, those tribal uh, uh, families because they had dispersed with all the other nations. Um, and it's not just the fact that men of Israel are marrying foreign women, that these children are being raised to minimize the distinctiveness of the people of God and the service rendered unto Yahweh in Ezra 9.1 and also as we see in Nehemiah chapter 13. Um, if they don't stop this, there will be no Israel left to be there when Messiah comes. That One of the important things that must be done during the Second Temple period is that Israel needs to maintain its heritage. And to maintain its heritage, they need to marry among their own people. And they continue the bloodline. And if, if they are not going to do that, they're going to be in serious trouble. And that risk is too dangerous. But of course, the main thing that Ezra is doing, and even what he's doing here with the uh, intermarriage issue, is that he is coming in as a scribe and as an Aaronite priest to teach people the law. That the king empowered him to teach and enforce the law of Moses in Judah. And as we can tell from the fact that they weren't observing the Feast of Booze, they needed to read about the law, that they were doing this intermarrying, things we see uh, Nehemiah as well, that there is not a lot of strong teaching of the law at this time. And as with Nehemiah, so with Ezra, a diaspora Jew has to come and set the native straight. You know, uh, the big concern is what will happen to Israel when you have diaspora Israel uh, living in Babylon and in other parts of the world and the Israelites in Judah. Uh, you might be concerned about the Israelites in diaspora maintaining their faithfulness. Well, actually, uh, it seems that the diaspora Jews were much more obsessed about keeping purity. And it's the Jews in, in the actual land that prove more willing to compromise. And so we see this trend where Nehemiah has to come to establish justice, to rebuild the wall. Ezra has to come to teach the law so the people remember what to do. Now what we see Ezra doing, though, is of the greatest importance. Because he comes and he reads and gives the sense of the reading in Nehemiah 8, chapter, verses 1 through 8. Then verses uh, 12 and 13, the elders and others come to study the law with him, to, to ostensibly read the text and explore its meaning. Now this is a very different approach than used earlier, if you think about it, during the monarchy or the exile. Both of those periods are primarily reliant on prophets of the day speaking wisdom for that moment. Uh, that you go to the prophet and you get the, the word of Yahweh spits directly from the prophet. And so Ezra proves to be a very important transition figure for us. He is an inspired scribe and teacher of the law. Now, especially if Ezra is a chronicler, that God is using him to refresh the story of Israel. And when you look at First Chronicles, it doesn't begin with David, although the narrative part does. Genealogically, First Chronicles begins all the way back with Ezra, with, uh, with excuse me, with Adam. If it, you know, the First Chronicles goes all the way back, 
and First Chronicles chapter one. In verse one, we are introduced uh, to Adam, and we're given all the, the genealogies uh, down to the time of the return from the exile. And what's going on is that Therese God is helping the Jews of the Second Temple period to understand how God has interacted with his people throughout that time. This isn't saying that the story is changing. It's a refresh of the story. It's a different perspective. So one thing we keep noticing about history is that uh, it's not that history changes, but when it comes to telling the story for a particular generation, the emphases change, and the way the story is told has changed. Uh, and that's what's going on with the Chronicler and with Ezra. And he's not doing an updated, thus says Yahweh. But what he's doing throughout is making sense of the law as codified. He's preparing Israel in terms of what they're going to need throughout the Second Temple period. That they're going to need to read the law or hear it read. And that the meaning needs to be made clear for all the people. And the law needs to be enforced in Israel. And it's in this way that Ezra is foreshadowing Jesus of Nazareth, who is the inspired teacher. In John 13, 13, he speaks of himself as a teacher. And you think about 500 years later, uh, Jesus is embodying this. Because he teaches with authority, not as their scribes. See, Ezra's a scribe. He is given authority by the king to impose what the law said. But Jesus comes in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and says, you know, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, uh, those who hear these words of mine and do them are like the one who builds on the rock. The one who hears these words of mine does not do them is like the one who built upon the sand. So he does teach with authority, does teach with the prophetic voice, but how many times does he talk about the scriptures? In Matthew 19, when the Pharisees come to him talking about the marriage law and divorce law in Deuteronomy 24, uh, Jesus explains the meaning. Uh, in Later on in chapters 20, 21, 22, as he is challenged by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he rightly exposits scripture. In Luke 24, 45-47, in his resurrection, he gives the disciples the understanding of how he fulfills uh, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And so Jesus is really modeling the way forward for the apostles and the disciples that we need to come to an understanding of what has been revealed and act upon its authority. That's why the Bereans are commended in Acts 17, 10-11, that they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They heard about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, and they compared it to what was written in the scriptures and saw if the interpretation was consistent. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, when... Paul affirms the centrality of Jesus' life, a death, burial, and resurrection in the gospel. He makes sure it's clear and says it that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was he raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And that in Jude chapter 1 and verse 3, that Jude can exhort Christians to contend for the faith delivered once for all. And this would be something that's continual. And so we get to this point here with, our, with, with Ezra in, in the Second Temple era, that we have a kind of two bookends here, that Daniel, you know, mostly living in the exile, but is an apocalyptic prophet, given visions of the future. And so he provides the way forward for Israel to understand prophetically the times and seasons, uh, the fact that 
these things that were happening through the Persian and, and Ptolemaic and Seleucid and Roman periods had been foreseen that God spoke to Israel about them before they happened. Ezra provides a way forward in terms of living without prophets. That, okay, the, God has explained what would happen, but there's no thus saith the Lord in each particular context. Instead, Ezra provides a way forward of reading the law, making sense of it, and applying it to life. That what Israel is going to need was to have a firm understanding of what God had already revealed to them and to apply it to their lives. And all of these things that Ezra emphasized are important for Christians today. In Romans 8 and verse 29, and Romans 12 and verse 1, Christians are told not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the ruling of our mind. That we're going to be conformed to the image of the Son. Then in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 18, we must be concerned about not becoming unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that in 1 John 2, 15-17, we're not to love the world or the things in the world. The desires of the eyes, the flesh, and the pride of life are contrary to the purposes of God, and uh, they're going to fade away, and we need to endure in the things of God. And that is why we must be distinctive in the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves lest we become conformed to the world, and that when the Son of Man returns, that there is no faith on the earth, which was a concern in Luke 18 and verse 8. Yet we also are to be people of the book, learning from Scripture how to serve God in Christ. Even though the apostles had received the Holy Spirit and were inspired, they did not just forsake what had been written. Instead, they encouraged the people of God to continue to explore what had been written. In Romans 15 and verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. In 2 Timothy 3, 14-16, Paul exhorts Timothy to consider the sacred writings uh, which makes him wise in salvation and that they are uh, inspired of God and profitable for every good work. Jesus was given all authority by the Father in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through twenty, and He empowered His apostles to establish the truths of His kingdom in Matthew eighteen eighteen. But as we see in Acts one twenty-one through twenty-two, that to be an apostle meant that you were a witness of the life of Jesus and of His resurrection. Therefore, it was confined to a single generation, and yet the apostles remained part of the foundation of the church, and they helped equip the saints to work in ministry in Ephesians two twenty and four eleven through twelve. Well, how is that possible? Well, they might be physically dead, but they still speak. We open up the scriptures, we read in the New Testament, and we read the words of the apostles, we read their teachings. And that is why the scriptures are authoritative, and it's the, because it's the way we learn about the witness of the apostles, about Jesus the Christ, his life, death, resurrection, lordship, kingdom, and his return. And that is why we must properly interpret and understand what the scriptures would tell us, and to apply them to our lives. Jesus is still Lord, Hebrews 13.8. And it's interesting when we talk about Ezra reading the law and giving the sense. So it could be understood. Ezra is doing this in the year 458 or so BC. Uh, Moses is understood to have lived in around 1450 BC. So a thousand year span of time. And yet Ezra and the Israelites expected that law given a thousand years earlier to still apply and needed to be uh, applied to that context. And so, yes, the gospel has been God's power to salvation for 1,950 years or so. But it still is applicable. 
it still is to be understood and made sense of, it still should be proclaimed, and it can still save. Therefore, we, as Ezra, ought to seek to properly understand God's word and to apply it to our lives. May we serve the Lord Jesus, not be conformed to this world, and to come to an understanding of his purposes according to the word, and be saved. We're again very glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged by this exploration into Ezra. If you've got some questions about Ezra, like to talk more about him or Jesus or any other scriptural matter, maybe you'd like to just talk or maybe you have a prayer request. If there's any way that we can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through our website at theverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Uh, you can also check us out uh, uh, online, theventuretochrist.org, and on social media and other platforms. Uh, we're again very glad for your interest in spiritual things, and we hope that you have a great day.